Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, folks. Another head-spinning week of news to make sense of. Rudy Giuliani is subpoenaed by congressional investigators in relation to Ukraine and Joe Biden. The New York Times reports that Trump urged the Prime Minister of Australia to help Bill Barr discredit the FBI's Russia probe, and the president has attacked the whistleblower, raising serious concerns about the individual's safety. I talk about all this and more with Ann Milgram on the Cafe Insider podcast. Each week, we break down the news and take stock of what's happening. Today, we're making a clip from the most recent episode available in the Stay Tuned feed. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. I've been thinking a lot about, which is, who's paying Rudy Giuliani? Right. Well, that's going to get to the question, perhaps, of what ability he has not to respond to the subpoena. So the subpoena, as you said, it's a lot of details, a lot of names. It's really comprehensive. Probably took them a few days to put together a fully comprehensive subpoena attachment. But I also want to make reference to the cover letter, which is significant for a couple of reasons. Um, The tone is sharp and strong. But first, the letter says, your failure or refusal to comply with the subpoena, including at the direction or behest of the president or the White House, this is important, shall constitute evidence of obstruction of the House's impeachment inquiry and may be used as an adverse inference against you and the president. So that's point one which I think is incredibly important, whether or not they're, they're able to ultimately compel the documents and the testimony, they're going to say, for lay people, if you don't give it up, we're going to assume it's the worst, we're going to assume it's against you, and that could constitute an article. And this is so important because what we've seen repeatedly is the administration just say, uh-uh, we're not giving it to you. And what Congress is, is finally doing is really stepping up and saying, okay, if you don't give it to us, it falls against you, you're obstructing our investigation, and we're telling you that up front. So you're going to make a choice, and you can say no, but that then we're going to count that against you, which is really important. We'll talk about Pompeo in a minute, but that's also in the Pompeo yes. letter. And the other part of the letter that's interesting, that doesn't have legal significance yet, but tells you what the committees are thinking, and they're putting it out there. It says, to me, this was the most significant sentence in the cover letter, and it says, our inquiry includes an investigation of credible allegations that you, meaning Rudy Giuliani, you acted as an agent of the president in a scheme to advance his personal political interests by abusing the power of the office of the president. So people keep asking, is Giuliani in jeopardy as well? What is the theory of the case against Giuliani? We don't know yet, but you know, this is this is a little bit of a grenade rolled across the threshold of Rudy Giuliani's office. It also frankly reads like Article 1 of the Articles of Impeachment a little bit, that this is the allegation against the president, that he abused his office in concert with Rudy Giuliani and others. And so I read that as, you know, this is the theme that Congress is going to explore. And this is, 
you know, what it's all going to come down to. Yeah. So separately from all that, I don't think it's of legal significance necessarily yet, but they do make reference to Rudy's appearances on television. And it makes specific reference to his appearance on CNN when he was on with Chris Cuomo. Uh, when Cuomo said, so you did ask Ukraine to look into Biden and remember... He Julian said no said, at first, right? Yeah. He said, of course I did. Yeah. So you did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden. Of course I did. You just said you didn't. No, I didn't ask him to look into Joe Biden. I asked him to look into the allegations that related to my client, which tangentially involved Joe Biden in a massive bribery scheme. Rudy. Not unlike Rudy. what he did in China. Rudy. You Damn right I ordered the code red. So... It's another example, like the president, of things that he's saying that can be used against him in court documents. So here's where the lay of the land is. Let's discuss next what right or privilege Rudy Giuliani has not to testify. Now, the one thing he said that people play over and over again when he was on one of the Sunday shows, when asked, are you going to cooperate with Adam Schiff before the subpoena was issued? He said, no, I think Adam Schiff is an illegitimate chair of the committee, so he doesn't like him very much, and says he should resign, and then says, I will not cooperate as long as it's Adam Schiff. And then, as he often does, when said, okay, so I guess you're not going to cooperate. So like, well, I didn't say that. Right. I will consider it, and it depends on what the president wants me to do. I don't know why, but when you were just saying it, it felt like, I will not eat green eggs and ham. <laughs> <laughs> Rudy, I am. <laughs> I don't know why that went through my head. So, yeah, so he basically, you know, he's got all kinds of excuses. Adam Schiff is not legitimate. Then wasn't there something about it's only issued by the Democrats on the committee, not by the full committee? It, it has signed to be signed by the Democrats, which is not how the Benghazi subpoenas worked. It's not how it works. Right. And so there's there's just a lot of sort of nonsense. And it's a little bit of the throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. What's really fascinating about the Giuliani piece and the TV piece in particular is that it really is a part and parcel of this whole conversation because he's been making a lot of statements on TV, including, you know, he said in publications, I'm not acting as the president's yes. lawyer. I'm acting, you know, on behalf of the government to, like, improve the republic. He said all kinds of things that really any defense he would have to try to – I personally don't think, and we should break this down, I don't think arguments of attorney-client privilege will work for a variety of reasons. There's really, to me, no barrier to Giuliani being compelled to provide this information and to talk. But he's going to come up with a series of different things that we should be expecting. So let, let's focus on attorney-client privilege for a few minutes. One, as you point out, in various contexts, he has said he wasn't acting as the president's lawyer. And then you look at the things he's done and the things about which the subpoena asks – and I don't understand what what lawyer-client interest was being vindicated. At a surface level, it looks like he was operating as like a fixer for the president or a campaign operative for the president, trying to help him in the campaign. There's no legal case pending against Donald Trump with respect to what Rudy is doing that he's trying to defend the president from. So as an initial matter, just because someone happens to have a law license and has a conversation with somebody who is putatively the client, that doesn't shield everything that's discussed from attorney-client privilege. If, if you decide to mow a guy's lawn, have conversations about the mowing of the lawn, and you were also his lawyer, you can, you know, depose the guy on the mowing of the lawn conversations in the contract there. This seems to be like that. Separate from his saying that he wasn't acting as the lawyer. There's also, by the way, as people keep pointing out, there's a crime fraud exception. Even if he's acting as a lawyer, if there's some theory by which you can argue that there was a criminal conspiracy going on, I don't know if that's true, and that I think we're, you know, way shy of that. But you can pierce the privilege. And then there's also the argument, and I don't know how far this goes, I'm not an expert on this in the in the Congress, that congressional committees don't recognize the attorney-client privilege. Right, they don't. They don't because it's not constitutional. The attorney-client privilege comes from common law, meaning it's handed down by courts through cases. And so Congress has always said that they don't 
honor the attorney-client privilege in part because it's not a trial over your liberty, right? It's just a totally different question, and it's an investigation by Congress. It's not a criminal trial. And so a lot of the reasons that attorney-client privilege exists don't exist here. Now, I don't think that means that Congress gives no deference to the attorney-client privilege because I think they're going to try to be reasonable. But in addition to the fact that Congress doesn't have to honor it, the points you made are really well taken. Rudy is actually not acting like Donald Trump's lawyer. And, you know, attorneys can't help clients commit fraud. But there's something else in addition to all this, which is that all of these public statements, you don't get to selectively apply the attorney-client privilege. You can't basically say, and by the way, we also saw this during the acting DNI's testimony a little bit, the Joseph McGuire on executive privilege, where he was trying to pick and choose what right. parts of it he was going to say are privileged. You don't get to do that. You're saying there's a waiver. Uh, yeah, there's a waiver. And so Rudy going up and talking about half of this stuff and being willing to a- answer questions on it, you then can't keep the rest of it secret. And so I personally, I see no legal basis for Rudy to win on the attorney-client privilege question. Um, so look, th- there may be some other privileges. There's uh, a privilege sometimes acknowledged uh, executive privilege, deliberative process privilege. Again, Rudy Giuliani is not a member of the United States government. Uh, he's sort of a free agent, private citizen. So all those other privileges that you can argue about with respect to getting counsel from someone in the White House or uh, at the Department of Justice or something else don't apply to him either. Right. And again, just... Separate from everything else, I still don't know what Rudy Giuliani's job is. Yeah, that's a really important point because if Rudy Giuliani is a part of the government and working at the State Department, none of that is privileged, right? right? And so he sort of wants it both ways to both be a private lawyer and to be part of the government. I mean, he said, I was instructed by the State Department. I got, you know, I was working closely with the State Department. That would never be privileged. And so you raise a really good point. I also am really concerned about his conflicts of interest and One of the things generally when you work for the government, you have one client and it's really problematic to have multiple clients because you're supposed to only put the interests of the United States government forward. And so we know that Giuliani has represented other foreign governments. We know that he has been engaged with a host of different people he's represented. And so I think there are also real questions of who does he represent, who's paying him, who's taking money and just what is his role in this? One last point on the Giuliani subpoena. One thing that's interesting about it is that there are a few people that he works with. These people, Igor Fronman, Lev Parnas, Vitaly Pruss, Sam Kislin, Joseph DeGeneva, Victoria Tensing. And there are a number of people who are listed in the subpoena. And so it's not just Giuliani. And it's really important to recognize this, that as in all things, when you do a criminal investigation, it's really just two people who are involved. And so The House has done a good job of saying we want to talk to everyone involved in the investigation, including everyone involved with Giuliani, everyone involved with the Ukrainian folks, and everyone involved with the State Department. And that matters because that's where the dam breaks. That's where people start to talk, people start to cooperate. And so I would argue that Giuliani is critically important for him to provide that information, but it's less important than people may initially think because there are a lot of people listed. Now, what do you make of this issue that's not legal, it's not about privilege, but about sort of appearance and strategy. Because uh, I keep hearing reports that are understandable that there's some people on the Democratic side who think it'll be, what's the word? I hate to use this word because it's family programming. If you have Giuliani come testify, it will be a shit show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really hard to argue with him. And he throws out a lot of you know, misleading statements and he's all over the place and he will talk over you. We see how he does it on, um, on the talk shows. There are some people who think that it won't be great and you won't advance the cause if he does agree to testify and sits in front of a committee, particularly given 
the nature of legislators questioning five minutes at a time. Right. If they don't have some, someone like Barry Burke, yes. you know, a, a, a practiced lawyer who knows how to ask questions, you know, at the end of the day, are they bluffing perhaps and they actually don't want Rudy to testify, but they just want the documents? That's a great question. I, I think they're starting in the right place with the documents and not with Rudy himself because the text messages, there'll be two people on them. And so you might want to get the other person in to say, hey, what else did you talk to Giuliani about? You'll be able to get a lot of evidence without actually having Rudy come in. To your point, I would assume, and I think you would assume, that he will come in and not be truthful, that he will do what he does on TV, which is spin excuse after excuse, story after story. And so if you have that, you ne- if, if you know that's going to happen, you need to have the evidence to be able to refute those stories. And so if he does testify, I would suggest that it's at the end, not at the beginning, and that the questioning be done by someone who actually knows how, like the Barry Burke is a great example, and there are other people like him, people who know how to present questions because otherwise you're giving it's like giving another opportunity for somebody to go on cable news and just you know spout and say whatever he wants the reality is if you're at the end of the investigation you should be able to say to Giuliani did you have this conversation and just pin him down on the facts that you know pin him down on what happened and you and I talk about this a lot but it's important to recognize one of the things that members of Congress do terribly when they do these these interviews and these questions is that They want people to agree with their conclusions. People, fact witnesses, particularly people who are adverse to you or who don't like what you're doing, are going to agree with facts, not with conclusions. And so, you know, this is one of those examples where it has to be tightly controlled, the questioning, and it has to be fact, fact, fact. And then you draw the conclusion and Giuliani can say yes or no at the end if you feel the need to do it. But really, it's too much trying to sort of get Giuliani to agree with someone else's worldview. And as you said, who knows what worldview he's going to come in with that day, but it's it's not going to be the one that is consistent necessarily with the evidence. I just want to digress for a moment because you just reminded me of something. You know, I don't mean to call anyone out, but it's really terrible. And the example that came to mind when I was hearing you speak was uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. On the question, he was asked the question, not a bad question, uh, about the call between President Trump and Zelensky. And he's asked, do you know anything about this? Of the president's July 25th call with the president of Ukraine, what we've learned in the last 24 hours is that Pompeo was actually on that call. What do you know about those conversations? So you just gave me a report about a icy whistleblower campaign, none of which I've seen. So he changes the question to be about the complaint by the whistleblower, not about the phone call, to which then, okay, so, well, you don't know anything about it. That is not what he said. Yeah. It's not what he said. And I get that people are complaining about Pompeo and that he was being too cute. Some people are suggesting he lied. He did not lie. He was not asked a sharp, pointed question with a rigorous follow-up. The follow-up should have been, wait a minute. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. I mean, the level of frustration that we have at how members of Congress ask questions. In case members of, I don't mean to sound very arrogant on our part, but it's our podcast, we can be. When you don't get an answer to the question, if it's a simple question, ask the same damn question again. Do you know anything about that phone call? He didn't answer it. The next question should have been, do you know anything about that phone call? And or you could say, were you listening to the phone call? Did you get a readout of the phone call? Right. Did you talk to anybody about the phone call? What do you know about the phone call? Were you concerned about the phone call? Instead, they, went, they moved right on. The same thing has happened in questioning between members of Congress and Bill Barr. And later, it's fun, I guess, weeks and months later, uh, we'll see on cable television a rerun of a particular question. And in almost every case you find, there's not a lie, there's weasel words, 
there's evasiveness. Evasive is the right word. But, but, and again, obviously the person who's being evasive and being too cute for comfort is the person who's blameworthy. But if you're really going to be trying to perform your oversight function well, then you got to get better at this. Yes, I could not agree more. I think Pompeo was evasive. I think he intentionally misled and or at least he intentionally gave the impression that he was not aware. Uh, That's what everyone took away from that conversation. And that to me is deeply problematic. He's an official of the United States government. But you are 100 percent right that there was a hugely missed opportunity. And we've seen this repeatedly where The questions have to be asked, and they have to be answered, and they have to be asked again until the truth comes out. Chris Wallace on The Sunday Show. Chris Wallace and Jake Tapper, our colleague, I think both did an excellent job with very different and difficult guests on the show. Chris Wallace is asking Stephen Miller repeatedly the same question, and it was, given that the president has the State Department and the CIA and all these other government agencies and government personnel, why is he using a personal lawyer? to do these things. And Stephen Miller tried to talk about something else. He said, no, no, no. I've asked you a specific... Don't don't talk to me about John Durham. I hope you've enjoyed this sample of the Cafe Insider podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and become a member. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. And you know who I did it at the request of? The State Department. I never talked to a Ukrainian official until the State Department called me and asked me to do it. And then I reported every conversation back to them. And uh, Laura, I'm a pretty good lawyer, just a country lawyer. But it's all here, right here. <laughs>